Welcome to Neighbor Up Spotlight. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining us today. Neighbor Up Spotlight is sponsored by Neighbor Connections and the City of Cleveland Cable Television Minority Arts and Education Fund. Neighbor Up Spotlight showcases citizens making positive contributions to their neighborhoods in our city. My guest today is Dr. Denise Wright, educational and clinical psychologist. She was raised on Beckett Road in the historical Ludlow neighborhood of Shaker Heights, Ohio, where she attended Ludlow Elementary School, Woodbury Junior High School, graduating from Shaker Heights High School in 1973. She went on to graduate from the University of Cincinnati with a BA in psychology, Wayne State University with a master's degree in educational and clinical psychology, and Howard University receiving her PhD in educational psychology with a minor in clinical assessment learning and cognition. Author, psychologist, photographer, educator, politician, community activist, advocate, and world traveler. She continues to be an impassioned, outspoken leader for her community and people of African ancestry worldwide. Dr. Wright has been affiliated with many distinguished institutions and organizations. Morgan State, Howard University, the Washington, D.C. Department of Behavioral Health, Director of Counseling and Psychological Services at the American University of Nigeria, and Senior Policy Analyst for the District of Columbia City Council, and has taught or lectured at a number of universities, including American University and Georgetown Medical School. Her research focuses on public health disparities, the perception of wellness, as well as the implementation of cognitive, behavioral, and nutritional strategies to reduce clinical presentations of depression and anxiety. She has received numerous awards and recognition for her contributions to her community. Currently, she has been re-elected as the Advisory Neighborhood Commissioner to one of the largest wards in Washington, D.C., representing 2,000 to 3,000 people and is an honorary member of the Neighbor Up Network. Welcome to Neighbor of Spotlight. It's so nice to have you here, Dr. Wright, a.k.a. Beeser, finally. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Who was that person you introduced? I have no I idea know, who that everybody. was. After I do everyone's introductions, everyone says, wow, okay, that's me? Yes, that yeah, is I you. I know, I know. It's, it's like, geez, you know, I, you know well, that's I, a lot. I, I mean, do, you know, I, I do, sounds I do like my homework. <laughs> I do do my homework. So let's get going because we've got so much to cover. So our first yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, we've got yeah. a lot to cover. So who and what inspired your outspokenness, activism, and love for learning? Uh, well, um, basically, um, you were an inspiration, oh. that's for sure. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's just the way we were raised. Yes. You know, we were raised during a time where we had the social and political influences that, you know, the Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud era, you know, so it brought about, you know, a sense of, of uh, you know, boldness and forwardness with regard to you know, uh, relearning our history and, and, you know, claiming who we were, you know, in this country. And uh, th that's the way it was. And the overall uh, aspect of, you know, being able to, you know, speak out and to have a certain position uh, was, was one of those types of things that we inherited, you know, growing yes. up. Yes. So I, it, was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful time, and I'm glad 
I was on the planet at that time. And and, and also, too, you know, uh, Dr. Wright and I grew up together in the Ludlow neighborhood. And so I can also say that all those wonderful conversations in your parents' breakfast nook in the kitchen, where we yes, talked a yes, lot. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That was, that was crazy. Those are classic you know, moments. The, thing, the classic stuff. And the thing that was so bizarre about the whole freaking thing is that sometimes I would come home and I'd see... People in my kitchen, my peers, who weren't even talking to me. <laughs> I was mad at me sitting around talking to my parents. I'm like, what the hell are they doing here? You know what I'm saying? Right, so, right. You know, mom and dad were a little popular. Yes, they were very popular. Very, very <laughs> popular. So now you are an educational and clinical psychologist. What does that entail? Well, basically, you know, I have my degree in educational psychology, but also do a lot of done a lot of clinical work and have training in clinical work. And uh, the educational uh, psychology aspect is more or less, you know, your uh, research and evaluation aspects, um, uh, doing uh, research design evaluation, um, you know, in different types of educational settings. And your clinical aspect is more or less, you know, what people know psychologists to be, you know, laying on the couch, talking about your problems and that kind of thing. Uh, clinical psychology and all the aspects of the field of behavioral science, as they call it, um, is very expansive. You know, we have organizational sites, we have environmental, we have industrial. Um, there's all different types of uh, branches of, of this particular uh, discipline. Wow. So, so Yeah. Wow. So listen, how has your work as a psychologist impacted policies on mental health? Well, a lot of the things that I've, I've been working on along with, you know, um, with uh, different organizations and, um, you know, programming and working in the community is the thing around um, examining disparities and equity issues. Because, you know, historically with structural racism, you're going to have this, this disparity, and a lot of this was uh, very uh, poignant during the, you know, the COVID-19 epidemic, yes. where we continued to lag behind on a lot of the indicators, and um, and we had a lot of um, issues uh, during, you know, pre, during, and post COVID. Right. Uh, so a lot of those those things were exacerbated. Uh, and um, so, in terms of you know policies around just from the beginning of where you even go in to walk into a hospital or urgent care center, what kind of care do you get? Yes. And that's an issue. And then we have the historical aspect of, you know, of the experimentation at different levels. And you have all different these these aspects. So uh, a lot of people of African descent have experienced these things in one way or another, be it themselves or a family member. And um, so a lot of those things have guided me in terms of the practice and examining some of those things um, so that people just become more aware yes. of, you know, the historical context in, in their current presentation. Now, how has your policy and research work impacted Black people and mental health? Um, basically, uh, the policy work um, around, again, with the disparity and equity issues, also with education, mm. uh, working with uh, groups or working within the school system and trying to change some of the, the aspects of that. The, unfortunately, you find uh, a lot of times that the 
state level in particular, like in the district, there's a, there's a disconnect between what goes on legislatively and what goes on, uh, you know, at the grassroots level. At the street level, level yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's like a, uh, it's like a, a disconnect of some sort. So Jay Francis Lips did do an example around, um, I used to do work around uh, homelessness. And uh, so basically the position in, in D.C. is we have all these different encampments in D.C. You know, people are homeless. A lot of people have lost their jobs. Yes. And uh, mental health issues have come to the surface. So if you had any uh, recessive type issues in terms of mental illness, it was kind of blew up over the course of COVID. Um, so we have a lot of people with encampments here now. There's a no loitering law. So that means there's a, uh, a law where you can't call the police because somebody's loitering. And then you can't uh, clear people out of the encampment. Mm-hmm. But they're not building enough affordable housing. Right. Same, yeah, same things happening. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to step on your line. Same thing is happening here in Cleveland. We have a, a lot of encampments, and just I don't hear anybody talking about building more housing, affordable housing, yeah, anyway. Right, which is crazy. So I mean, it doesn't make sense. So you know, people yip 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 about it, but at the same time, there's nobody's doing anything. Yeah. And you do have money in the coffers, and you do have. Uh, you can get commitments from developers and. There's so many creative ways to even address the issue. Um, but we don't have a system that even adequately addresses a lot of the issues around mental illness, addiction, and homelessness. Yes. So, you know, uh, you know, since George Floyd's murder and all the other horrendous murders of black people at the hands of law enforcement, can you talk about the impact on black people and specifically black children viewing the murders of black people by police officers and the historical and daily stress of dealing with racism and how we can care for ourselves and our families? Well, you know, that's somewhat of a loaded question. This is a three-hour interview. (laughs) I don't know, but we'll see. (laughs) I told you, we have a lot to cover. That's a three-hour interview right there. Right, exactly. That that is a loaded question. Yes, it is, Um, it is. I'm just going to kind of break it up and keep it, keep it, uh, do a cursory look at this thing, kind of uh, fan out. One of the things, so one of the things that struck me with the George Floyd thing was that uh, how technology has basically catapulted uh, (laughs) racist acts or police brutality on the front page. Yes. Um, I find that interesting. The second thing is, is that over 200 black men have been killed since George Floyd. That's crazy. Okay. Uh, but that's not in the news. Yeah. Um, you have people who get mixed messages around uh, what was going on, and you have the media who extrapolate certain things to make newsworthy, you know, uh, comments so that people are engaged. Mm. So we have a lot of bias when it comes to looking at exactly what's going on. So even today they're talking about Republicans are saying what happened at the, <clears throat> what happened at the Capitol was something akin to Black Lives Matter. So it's like, yeah. uh, how does that work? Yeah. And at the same time, you're dealing with this blatant type of 
misrepresentation of the truth. So even though you're looking at it, which was like kind of like the mantra of Trump, you even though you're looking at it, what you're seeing is not true. Right. And so this has really affected uh, uh, people of African descent in such a way uh, that it has really um, had a an influence on you know rates of depression, um, drug use. Yeah. Uh, we uh, across the country, you'll find that a lot of people, you know, crime has, uh, you know, crime incidents have spiked. Yes. Um, across the country, and these are residual effects of not only COVID, but a lot of the things that haven't even been addressed um, during the George Floyd uh, uh, trial. So there's a lot of different things going on, and nobody's really zooming out. And looking at it, and there's just a lot of rhetoric, and people are confused um, because they 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 take snippets of information and they run with it. Right. You know, sometimes you have to read the whole article in the newspaper. Exactly, you do to get the full. Sometimes full you got to read the whole article when you're on the internet. You got to read the whole freaking article because it gives you a better context on what's going on. And one of the policies around dumbing down America has uh, the, the residual effects of that. People don't understand civics. They don't uh, question things because they really don't understand how government works. I didn't understand how fragile government was until Trump got involved. Yes. You know, and I, I know a few things. I don't know everything. I'm not omniscient by no means, but I didn't know I was that far off the mark. And what people assume that They'll, you know, people always say, oh, they wouldn't do that. Well, yeah, they would. <laughs> you yeah. know, folks, folks need to get with the program on that because, yeah, they will. And so um, those are some of the things. I don't know if I answered your question, but those are some of the things that kind of struck me uh, with, the, with uh, through the whole George Floyd thing. So, um, so, so the, tail end, the tail end of the question is how can – how can we uh, care for ourselves and our families in light of all of this information as black people? Well, I think one of the things is not, you know, when you get up in the morning, decide that you are going to make someone laugh or happy. That's the first thing. Second thing is you have to not look at the negative all the time because that has these microaggressions that we suffer every day as people of color in this country has to be, you know, it weighs on your psyche. Yes, it does. So you have to kind of counterbalance some of those things. The other thing are the usual rituals of, you know, eating properly, you know, exercise, you know, being able to commune with people. The other thing is asking for forgiveness and forgiving others. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing because a lot of us, carry around a lot of weight in terms of our current and past relationships. Uh, that helps out a lot. Um, and then also education around our history. And I mean going back to like the 1500s, because once you, and I always tell people this, once you understand the history, it puts things in proper context. Once you understand the history, it puts things in proper context. True. And you feel so much better because you understand where you are at present. True. And I also want to add, too, that if you feel like you need to talk to someone professionally, then do that. 
Oh, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. yeah. I guess I overlooked that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Being a psychologist. Yeah. At, you, know, you know, basically, I'm looking at the masses. I mean, you know, going yeah. to a therapist and get therapy is, is still not all that cute in the black community. No, you it's know not. what I'm saying? So I, Then that's why I had to say it, because it's, you know, it is still seen as, you know, something that you, you know, it's not really cool to do. And if you need to talk to someone, find someone professionally that you feel comfortable with that you Mm -hmm. can talk to. So now in 2009, you were elected as the Advisory Neighborhood Commissioner for your ward and reelected in 2021. What do you do and how do you want to impact your community there in Washington, D.C.? So an ANC commissioner is much like, um, you know, the folks that they have in Chicago or in New York, but those people are paid. In D.C., you are not paid, (laughs) but you have to be elected. Yes. So we, uh, you have to, you know, actually get your petition together. You have to, some people go out and, uh, you know, campaign and, all that other kind of stuff. Some are more flamboyant than others. Me, I didn't do anything. Uh, you know, so, and then you're, then people go to the polls and they vote for you, like they vote for the president or the senator or whatever. And so I got back on the ticket uh, this past year, you know, in 2020. And um, I didn't think I was going to win. There was some other guy was running and stuff, and I said, he can have it because, you know, uh, this is like a, a real job because if you're going to be a good commissioner, it's a real job because basically what you end up doing is you end up dealing with a, a, lot, a lot of the district agencies coordinating stuff. Um, you have to deal with um, um, uh, alcohol licenses. Uh, you deal with zoning. You deal with uh, rat abatement. Uh, you deal with all these different things. You deal with MPD. You know, we all have, like, these uh, public uh, service uh, areas where, you know, the police are. So you got to, you know, you hook up with them. You know, people have housing issues. Yeah. It's just it's supposed to be something, you know, really bad, like, you know, you know, a homicide down to I'm tired of people throwing trash on the street. Yes. So it's just a lot of, a lot of different things. And um, we've had a lot of development here in the district. And. Uh, you know, so my S&D is kind of blown up to like maybe, I would dare say, like 4,000 people. Okay. So uh, redistricting is come up, coming up because, you know, the census is, uh, is come, you know, has been completed. So they're going to start doing redistricting soon. And uh, what, uh, what is just your opinion on the, 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 the move, to, the drive to, for statehood for, for Washington, D.C.? I don't get me started. I think, I think, I mean, I'm kind of for it and against it at the same time because I'm not clear on how this is going to impact everything. I'm not, I'm not clear on once, you know, we become a state, what exactly is that going to mean? And uh, we've functioned like this so long. Uh, I've been in D.C. for 35 years. Okay. And um, we functioned like this you know, for so long. I mean, I do call D.C., you know, the great plantation. But because um, we always have to go, you know, Congress and beg them for stuff. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times there's a Republican standing there. Um, they harass the mayor during um, the hearings uh, in terms of the quest for statehood. So 
I, I'm kind of for it and against it because I'm not clear how that's going to impact the uh, the politics and the the coffers of of the district yes. and how what exactly is this going to look like? Yes. So um, I haven't studied it uh, to the point that I know it backwards and forwards, but. Um, people are clamoring for statehood here because we do pay taxes with no representation. Yes. Yes. Well, now, when you were the director of counseling and psychology at the University of Nigeria, how did your work impact the community there? Um, well, first of all, that was the most bizarre experience I've ever had in my life living over there. <laughs> Uh, you know, basically, we're in, like in the middle of the desert. I was in the northeastern part of Nigeria, mm-hmm. and uh, it was extremely interesting. Um, the person who founded the place, Atiku Abubakar, uh, ran for vice president and president of Nigeria a number of times, um, and he was formerly the vice president of Nigeria. Um, so he founded the university. And um, so it was just it was just an interesting experience. But what I did get a chance to do is work with um, the state uh, uh, substance use, uh, uh, you know, board uh, in terms of their treatment uh, protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, you wouldn't believe what kind of. Uh, I don't know. The infrastructure there is just so so totally different. Yeah. Um, the things that we're used to here, I mean, people complain about the states, and I get that. And, and you know, we as African-Americans, uh, we've been through a lot. Um, but when you go to other parts of the, uh, of the world and you see certain things, it's, it's really, really a significant difference. Yes. Um, the other thing I did was I worked with a women's clinic. And they had invited me and the uh, nurse to come and do some HIV training. Mm-hmm. But when we got there, the place was so crazy and dilapidated. I was like, look, you don't need training. You all need help. Yes. So we started to get a lot of different things because people would come there and they would come for uh, prenatal care and uh, have, uh, have their babies there and postnatal care. And <clears throat> the place was basically falling down. Their equipment was, was virtually non-existent. So um, the nurse and I, Jamima, her name is Jamima, she uh, and I, we got together and we started putting some things together at the clinic in terms of equipment. And then after Jamima left, I went back in and I, you know, spent like, I don't know, about $5,000 trying to get things together and equipment and get, wow. I tried to get them. Like, they didn't even have a toilet, a oh, working toilet. Wow. You know, so that, yeah. that was crazy. So I was just trying to get people to do it, uh, bring in a toilet. And then they, um, the water pump, somebody stole their water pump, you know, wow. after a day or two, Wow. you know, somebody had, had, had uh, got them water pump. So there was no water. So I was, you know, I was working on a lot of different things, the roof, the paint, you know how, you know yes. how I am, Carol. Yeah, you know, yeah. I go a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you go all in. I want things to be, yeah. yeah, I want things to be, you know, perfect. You know, yeah. I want things to, you know, I want things to function. I want things to work. Yeah. And um, got them new mattresses, went to the mattress factory and ordered the mattress. You wow. know, just, yeah. it, it is just definitely a different experience working there. But, but yeah, it was, um, 
it was very, very interesting. In the, and the segue, you know, in terms of culture, mm-hmm. uh, they used to call the people, because there was a, a contingent of us from the East Coast, African-Americans from the East Coast, that worked there, you know, professors and other people. And they would call us white. Oh, and we wow. would become extremely upset. And they were like, look at us like, why are you upset? It was a dude, you know, why are you calling us white? Well, you know, you're from America. I was like, that has nothing to do with it, wow. you know. So, um, so you know, the cultural differences were, were very, very uh, stark, so to speak. And um, so it was a very interesting experience. Wow, which segues into the next question here. While in Nigeria, you conducted a study on skin lighteners. Can you share some of your history on this behavior and the findings of your research? Which is very interesting. Basically, the whole thing started with when I used to go to the grocery store, one of the larger grocery stores in Yola. Now, mind you, this is basically a one-horse town that is in the middle of the desert. Um, You know, they... um, so they had, you know, limited resources, supplies and stuff like that. And then the culture was one in which, you know, was half Muslim, half Christian. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it was, it was an interesting uh, dichotomy. I used to go into the grocery store, and one day I noticed I was looking for something benign. I, I can't remember what it was. And then I kept seeing all this, you know, the bleaching stuff. I noticed it before, but. Then I was like, dude, wait a minute. Where's look all this bleaching stuff they had? Um, bleach soaps, lotions, creams, everything. So I went back and I told my um one of my you know, the one of my a couple of my students to go in and actually count every product that they had in that store that had anything to do with bleaching. And they had over two hundred wow. products. Wow. They had more products for bleaching than they had for consumption. Wow. So um, then that uh, went into uh, conducting a study where I had uh, a cadre of people. But a lot of my, the majority of the sample were my students, and then had some external people who were, um, who I interviewed and, um, and asked them about bleaching and did they, uh, did the males, were they more attracted to lighter-skinned women and stuff like that? Um, and then why did they bleach? You know, ask the females, why did they bleach? And what did they think they were getting out of it? Because one of the big issues with the bleaching issue, which is basically all over the, all over the world, um, yes. is that it ca- it's a public health and uh, uh, issue. Because the more you bleach, the more you have to bleach. Because once you quit bleaching, then the, the uh, melanin in your skin uh, it rapidly, you know, uh, starts to come back and then much darker than your original tone, and then you're compelled to bleach again. So um, once you bleach all the way, you know, you keep bleaching, then your <laughs> skin, you know, your external epidermal layers, they begin to break down, and then you get this kind of smell. And then the other toxins of stuff, you know, uh, get into your system and then, you know, it could cause, you know, organ failure, uh, you know, your liver, which tries to break down toxins and what have you. Um, because the uh, health system is what it is over there, uh, it doesn't bode well, you know, if you, if you don't have these types of issues due to bleaching on top of everything else. 
Um, and so that's why I kind of called it a public health issue. Now, men had started to bleach, too. You know, males had started to bleach. Um, you know, they do the bleaching in Korea. Um, you know, they, uh, as I put in the book, I was, you know, I also put in the book how they, you know, do, do the bleaching of the vaginal area, you know, that kind of thing. So things are, you know, gotten out, you know, things gotten out of control. Well, I, I can uh, with the bleaching thing. Oh, I can certainly remember as a child, you know, I remember, <laughs> you know, bleaching creams. You know, and I can, because they've been, they've been here in the United States, you know, forever as well. And I can remember an article, my parents were, were married and they were on the front page of the Birmingham World News. And so as I was working, looking at the ads, I clearly remember an ad as a child as I'm looking at this paper, which says lighter skin is prettier. And right. it was this ad in the Birmingham World News. And I will never forget that. <clears throat> and, and I just want to say too, in, in reading your report, the research work, which was excellent. You know, one of the main things in the bleaching creams is mercury. And uh, right. that's pretty dangerous. Right. And so I don't think I put that in the thing because I had a, uh, I went and presented the paper in Abuja. And um, I don't think I put that in there. And I also presented the faculty. But, uh, you know, even during the time, you know, back in the 1800s, you know, they had, of the, all these bleaching creams and the U.S. Post, Postal Service, I think in the early 1900s, uh, basically shut down the whole bleaching business because it had mercury and other, you know, toxins, and people were uh, becoming extremely <clears throat> ill and dying, mm. and they no longer shipped the bleaching cream. And then you had a lot of companies that utilized the black newspapers right here in the District of Columbia to advertise bleaching cream. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was interesting. And then the, one of the toxins that are used in bleaching cream come from a, you know, a bug. I don't know. I should have looked at my my um, my PowerPoint before this conversation. Comes That's from okay. a bug, and then, you know, some of these toxins are also used in paint. Um, so once you ingest these things or you take the, the things into your epidermis, it's, it's really, really... Uh, uh, can devastate your body. Now, the same regulations that we have in the in in the states are not the same regulations that they have in Africa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of product that we see may see over there, you're not going to see over here. Yeah. Yeah. Because they don't they don't pass the, they don't pass the, the test. Uh, you yeah. know. So yeah. um, it, it's it's an interesting uh, a concept, and to this very day. Um, I would ask people, you know, I said, well, why do you bleach? They said, well, it's not bleaching. It's just, you know, I want my skin to look better and stuff. I'm like, but you have flawless skin, for Christ's sake. I mean, yeah. I'm like, you know, people in the States would kill for your skin. Yeah. You know, they would kill for your skin. Yeah. And they just, you know, it's like a, a blinders on or something. And then you have, um, there was one man that we interviewed at, at, the, at the open air market. And he was buying, you know, these soaps and creams that would take to home to his wife so she could use them, you know. Wow. So um, it was really, really interesting. And, like, the last thing I wanted to say was we did interview this guy uh, at, a, at a beauty shop, and he had put together his own uh, um, mixture of bleaching cream. And he said to us, he said, if you line up 100 women, 
right here, and you asked him who wanted to be dark, he said 99% of them would say that they did not want to be dark. Wow, that's, that's, that's sad. Said. So that, that, was, that was really, really interesting. And also the mom-and-pop stores or the local dealers or whatever being bought out by the large companies. Wow. Wow. They're being bought out by the large companies. And they're doing, you know, the sophisticated marketing. And they're also targeting men. Yeah. So there you have it. I'm telling you, it's a lot. It's crazy. Jeez. So now in 2019, you and Dr. Raymond Winbush published The Osiris Papers, Reflections on the Life of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Can you tell us why Dr. Welsing is one of the most important African-American thinkers of the past 100 years? She's... Very I think profound. she's extremely important. First of yes. all, let's, let's talk about just how the book thing started. Um, I first met Dr. Welding down at Fisk University. I know Raymond Winbush, who's also a Clevelander. Yes, he is. And he was at Cleveland, Cleveland State, State University. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, so I met him at Fisk, and I was doing their, I was doing, I was a consultant doing their evaluations for the Race Relations Institute. So I met Winbush over 25 years ago. Um, and then that's where I first, first met uh, Dr. Welsing and Neely Fuller. And they were often, you know, uh, present together. They were colleagues. And uh, that's when I first met her. And then um, Winbush, who was much more, you know, was more very close to her, um, he used to talk to her about the ISIS papers. And uh, it took her, you know, I think over a decade to, to do this, you know, to finish the ISIS papers. And once it was published, she got a lot of flack. And, um, you know, Howard University, that you know, didn't give her tenure and all that other stuff. So she ended up leaving there. But over the years, uh, Wimbush uh, maintained contact with her and was very close to her. And then once she uh, made her transition, um, Wimbush and I were talking one day, and uh, he said, you know, I really want to do a sequel or do something, you know, in honor uh, of, you know, Welsing and uh, the book. And so we we went back and forth about it for about for months, and then finally, you know, put something together. Yes. And then we got together with uh, Black Classic Press, and they, you know, Paul Coates, who is the father of ta Coates. Yes. Um. And uh, we, uh, you know, he said that he would publish the book. And then from there on, it was from, you know, getting the different, the different authors to uh, write their own um, interpretation and uh, on each one of the areas of people activity that uh, Welsing and Neely Fuller used to talk about. So the, these whole areas, you know, can constitute the, the, the system of the structural a system of a uh, white supremacy, and um, so that I think she was one of the more prolific people because after I read her book and looked at some of the and looking at history, yes. it it made me feel better. Yeah. yeah, because I understood what I was looking at. Right. So even now, when she talked about the whole concept of where you know one of the things she talked about is genetic annihilation. One of the things about just the general uh, thing around a species itself is that you're going to fight for survival. And I interpret what's going on right now 
with um, people who are non-melanated uh, that they're fighting for their survival. So you're going to see, you know, issues with, you know, the rise of uh, uh, things like uh, dictatorship. You're going to see the things that happen in the ca at the Capitol in January. Mm -hmm. You're going to see, you know, all these different types of things going on. Um, you know, what was going on over the UK, uh, Brexit, and all this other stuff. So mm -hmm. it, it made me feel like, okay, now I have some kind of context from which to understand what's going on and there's no need for me to to take the the whole notion that i'm in fear or something's wrong with me because yes. it isn't yes i'm yeah. not below or beneath anybody because yeah. at the end of the day this is all just marketing and i put that in the book is that yes. it's all marketing nobody said okay well you're a theory because you're like this, or you're this because of that, or you didn't do this, that, and the other. No, it was all it was all marketing and you know terrorism or whatever you want to call it, you know. And if mm. and, and people bought in and believed, yeah. you know, under being you know terrorized and pressured and you know switching things around or whatever, you know, not doing your language, you know, not knowing your language, not knowing your culture. This is how you kill people. This is how you kill their culture. Yes. So now tell us about your chapter in the ISIS Papers Revisited, the politics behind black male sexuality, which is, as I told you, so well written, Beezer. So Thank you so, so much. So that really well written. It really, really is. A lot of context, a lot of history. And I encourage people to pick up the book by you and Dr. Raymond Winbush. I encourage people to buy the book. And uh, it's very affordable, uh, but just but your, your chapter's really laid out and easy to understand. Can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, like I told you before, they left, I had to cut out like 30 pages. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it was like a freaking dissertation, for Christ's sake. You know, because I get all into it, you know, just trying to get all the angles in, but... Yeah. You did a great job. That whole thing, huh? You did a great job. Yeah, thank you so much. That's that's big coming from you because you don't you don't hand out compliments <laughs> too easily. So you know. <laughs> but yeah, but um, one of the, so if you if the beginning of the book, and I don't know if you noticed that or not, you know the the kind of the, the parts in italics mm. talked about, you know. Uh, uh, it's reminiscent of when we grew up and how our parents were. Yes, I did. You know, I read that. Mm -hmm. How they presented stuff. I mean, did we talk about your dad? How he always wore a crisp white shirt. Yes. And a tie. He was always clean. Yeah. Always clean. You know. Um, then, I, then also the book I talk about Tony's dad. Yeah. How um, uh, you know he used to watch the kids play, and he had you know he had a rifle. Yeah. Because, you know, the KKK was, you know, you know, badgering people in the neighborhood. And that was, you know, and that's when Karen's dad was. Yeah. When, uh, when we, yeah. When we first was, moved. Uh, yeah. I, I can remember when we first moved in Shaker in 1960 and we all moved to Ludlow neighborhood. I mean, people used to ride up and down our street yelling nigger and shooting guns. And, and if my memory right. serves me correctly, that the Klan did burn a cross. Didn't they burn a cross on Karen's lawn? Because yeah, her father yeah. was, your father so was a lawyer for the NWCP. Yeah. Watch, you know, watch us play out there yeah. and get his rifle at the ready, just yeah. in case. Yeah. You know, and so, um, 
So I talk about that, and I talk about how, you know, now where we have a lot of people who have been disillusioned, pushed out, um, and uh, and how the young child who goes to school in the fifth in the in kindergarten, who's five years old, is just so full of wonder and so and innocent. And when they go into the school system, a lot of times that they lose that innocence because yes. they are not. You know, the system is not programmed to promote them and encourage them and support them as leaders. True. And so um, that that was the beginning part. And then the other part was just the march through history in terms of talking about just the, the superficial nature of how uh, we as uh, people of color and black men in particular have been targeted to basically break down the nucleus of the, of the family and how it happened, you know, at the beginning where they took, uh, you know, a, a lot of the black males, you know, in the 1500s and started taking them out of the villages and uh, left behind, you know, you know, their, their, their wives, their children, you know, other older members of the family. And it's been happening again and again and again. So not only you have the, the whole thing around the, uh, the, the the trade, the human trade, but you also have, after the human trade, then you have, you know, the whole plantation setting. And then you, after that, you have, you know, you can't get a job, but we really want you to fight in these wars. Mm-hmm. You know, we want you to fight in these wars. We want you to fight in the Revolutionary War. We want you to fight in the Civil War, all of that, but we're not going to give you your freedom. We're still going to take your balls away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You can't have balls. And then, you know, the laws that say, oh, you know, black people, you know, black men in particular, you can't have a gun. So you can't, you cannot defend your family. Yeah. You know, when people start rolling up on you. Yeah. And, you know, you got to go, you got to go to the back of the line. And, you, you know, you can't be recognized once you come back as a veteran. And, yeah. you know, you can't get any of this money that the government is giving out. Yeah. And you can't belong to the union and, you know, you got to be a sharecropper, you know, so it's the proverbial, you know, foot on the, you know, knee on the neck, yes. which was the manifestation of, of what George Floyd was going through. Yeah. This was a, this was a symbolic picture, which was just so stark of yeah. what we have been going through for the past 450 years. Yes. Yeah. And that's basically what the what the chapter talks about. And I do talk about in the end, first of all, how resilient we are, how very few people, and we're probably the only people on the planet, who were shipped, packaged, marched, shipped, packaged, whipped, everything, took stripped us down and everything, but we still we still had innovation. We still invented stuff. Yes. We learned culture very quickly. Yes. We learned the language very quickly. We ad- adapted quickly, and we did all these things right off the boat. Yeah. Nobody else has done that on the planet. I challenge anybody to show me <laughs> that anybody else on the planet has done that. Yes. And on top of that, I talk about we have the right to be just totally crazy because anybody else would be. Yeah. But we continue to hang on. We continue to be resilient. 
we continue to march on, we continue to fight for what yes. our rights are and being, you know, equal individuals on the planet. Yes. And that's it. And we still are asking for our land and everything else. And we still ask asking for reparations. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we are extremely resilient people. And that's the one thing that we've got. True. Resilience. And right now, and we're still now having to, once again, go back to that fight to maintain our right to vote. Right. You know, right here in yeah. uh, 2021. So there, I mean, like I said, like I said, it's the right. It's, you know, the whole thing around our Trumpism, Hitlerism, whatever you want to call it. All these things are going to be happening all over the planet. It's going to be happening all over the planet. It's going to be crazy. And, you know, people, non-melanated people, only constitute 17% of the world. Mm. They're in the fight for their lives. Yeah. So when we talk about, so when, so when Dr. Welsing talks about this whole thing, she puts it in a context where she talks about the formula. She talks about, you know, this is what happens. She talks about symbolism. All these things that people all over the world have been exposed to. Yes. When I went to Senegal, they said the white man's cast. Excuse me? How did this The white man's cab, how did that happen? Did you say cab? The white man's cab. You know, he's like, oh, you want a white man's cab or something like that. A cab, you know. Yeah, a cab driver. Cab. Oh. I was like, freaking dick, this is so crazy. Wow. Or riding back from um, the southern part of Nigeria, and the guy puts on Doris Day. <laughs> <laughs> I told the guy, I said, you know what? If you don't quit playing this, I will, I will beat you. I will, you got to pull up. I will beat you senseless. <laughs> I said, you better put on some, some regular Nigerian music. Okay. <laughs> oh, I thought that's what you all like. Excuse me. Who told you that? Well, aren't you from? No, I'm not from America. Wow. Put some else you want, you know. Wow. Just, yeah. just, just a lot of different types of experiences. Uh, having those experiences been, it's, it's, it's been, it's been something else. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. I do want to say that I remember when Dr. Francis Chris Welsing was on the Phil Donahue show, and I can remember posting myself in front of the TV, and I do encourage people to go to YouTube and, uh, pull up uh, that episode of Dr. Welsing on the Phil Donahue show. If I'm not mistaken, she was on for two days, which was a monumental and uh, really an interesting conversation. Yeah, she used to, I mean, she she used to really, she's been on certain things where um, she was on the Phil Donahue show, um, and also she had also um, had challenged a lot of people, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, quote-unquote scholars. Yeah. And all of that, who, um, who you know, had a different type of perspective. It was extremely interesting how they um, uh, portrayed the whole thing and how she took a lot, a lot of pressure uh, from people. Um, I remember the whole thing around uh, James Baldwin. You know, James Baldwin traveled a, a lot of places all over the world, like the U.K., um, here in the States, all over the Europe. 
And they used to challenge him in yeah. these different forms. Yeah. And people used to come and they used to ask him all these questions. Yeah. You know, but James Baldwin was on these same, uh, these same uh, shows. Yes. So now in 1995, you took up the art of photography. Why do you describe yeah. your photos as organic and why is shooting in black and white your passion? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just love black and white. It's Me just too. got shades of truth. You know, it's got yeah. shades of truth. It, it distills certain emotions and lighting in such a way that I, I, my eye appreciates. Yeah. I, I love it. And then, you know, organic photos, I call them organic because I usually don't shoot. Say, oh, yeah, let's get together for a picture. I don't do it like that. I shoot, like, on the fly. Yeah. I'll shoot on the fly. I will shoot, you know, I'll, I'll just pick, I'll just throw the camera up and shoot. It could be anything. It could be anybody. It could be something. It could be an event. It doesn't have to be an event. It could be anything. But, and I don't, uh, I get them processed. Uh, the film, I still use film for the most part. I do use some digital now, but usually with my phone. Mm -hmm. um, and it's processed, and I usually don't get any, you know, I don't Photoshop stuff. Yeah. So it is what it is. What you get, that's what you get. Right. Now, in 2018, photographs of your time in Yola, Nigeria, were in, in an exhibition uh, in a show that was entitled Colored Nations. What was the theme yeah. of your work, and what do you want to convey with your photos? Well, basically, the whole thing around Colored Nation was, um, that was back in 2018, and we did it at the Anacostia Arts Center in Southeast, and it was me and uh, uh, one of my uh, other friends, you know, like extended family, um, She's got her doctorate in anthropology, um, and she does paint. She paints. Mm -hmm. So we did a we did a exhibition together, and we're we're really heavy into social justice uh, issues and things of that nature. So a lot of her work uh, was you know was uh, you know and the paint you know paint uh, oils and water, and uh, and then I had my pictures. So they were juxtaposed together. Uh, with a theme of, of social justice. And basically just trying to show um, um, different images and to capture some of the, the the emotions as well as, you know, the cultural nuances of, of living in Nigeria. Like, um, I'll just I'll give you one where I have a picture of at the uh, uh, psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. I used to go there on rounds uh, with the other psychiatrists. Um, to, you know, and it's a small place, but they had, you know, two different, like, I guess you would call them wards. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing rounds with them. But, you know, when you come outside, um, you would see all these clothes in the tree. Mm. And what, what the deal was is that on the weekends, the patients were on their own. Oh, wow. And they would give them, like on a Friday, they would give them, quote, unquote, their meds, for the weekend and then their relatives were responsible for coming in and doing their laundry or whatever so oftentimes they would come if they came in and did the laundry or whatever they would hang all their laundry up on the tree there was uh -huh. a great big giant tree you know in the front yard yeah wow so now how can people contact you regarding your work as a psychologist 
photographer, for speaking engagements, or your community advocacy? I guess Facebook, I guess. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, do you want to give any more information oh, in that? I'm on Facebook once every 10 days. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. They can probably find you faster than they can find me. Well, well, I'm asking about you. So how can people find you beyond Facebook? I guess, I guess on Facebook. Find okay. Me on Facebook. All right. But well, people can yeah. contact you on Facebook. Well, you yeah. know, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Denise Wright, for visiting with us today. I've enjoyed our conversation, Denise. It's been great. It's been I, I enjoyed it, too. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fabulous. We didn't talk about the other stuff, which I really wanted to talk about. <laughs> well, we've got another time for that. <laughs> Okay, because yeah. I definitely want to talk about that other stuff. Yeah, I don't. I, I we, we I'm I'm putting something together for that now. Oh, okay. Well, so, thank you very much. You're quite welcome. So, I would like to leave our audience with a quote from my guest today: "The evolution of humanity has not kept pace with the evolution of technology." I would like to thank our audience for stopping by today. We appreciate your support. Please join us again as we continue our conversation with Clevelanders who are making positive contributions to their neighborhoods and communities. Visit Neighborhood and Connections. Thank you, Miss Malone. <laughs> You're quite welcome. Visit right. you. Thank you so much. For, thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a blast. I appreciate it. I appreciate you being here. You're so very welcome. Visit Neighborhood Connections to see all of the community engagement activities and opportunities. If you have a great idea and want to do something positive for your community, contact Neighborhood Connections at 216-361-0042 or send us an email at www.neighborhoodgrants.org and like us on Facebook. Get informed, get involved, get connected. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining me today on Neighbor Up Spotlight. Neighbor Up Spotlight is sponsored by Neighborhood Connections and the City of Cleveland Cable Television Minority Arts and Education Fund in association with Bad Record Recording Studios. Executive producer, creator, writer, host, Carol Malone. Co-producer, Lila Mills. Engineer, James Cananan. Photographer, social media, Vince Robinson. We're just a homemade, handmade podcast from scratch. Please share our positive stories with your neighbors, friends, family, and on your social media. Thank you for listening. Neighbor up.